Well, as we start our message recap for this new sermon series called What is Truth, we're going to be joined by some guests and some friends at the Heights. And I am so excited this week to join Dr. David Larry, who is a church member at the Heights. He is also an atmospheric scientist and a professor of chemistry, or excuse me, of physics at the University of Texas at Dallas. He is um, interested in applying computational and information systems to facilitate discovery and decision support in earth science systems. And his main contributions have been to highlight the role of carbonaceous aerosols in atmospheric chemistry, heterogeneous bromine reactions, and to employ chemical data assimilation for satellite validation and the use of machine learning for remote sensing applications. Now, all that to say is that you have seen the universe in ways that most of us have not seen it, and yet you believe that the Bible is truth, that it is God's word, and it is given to us for profit, for insight, and for growth. I just want to have a conversation with you and talk through how is it that someone who um, understands and applies different uh faculties of, of the universe, how is it that you have come to understand that the Bible is indeed truth? So um, it's hard for me to limit my excitement on this topic. Oh, we've talked so before. Yes. There, um, there are four aspects, at least, of truth that are very different that's just so impressed me personally that the longer I live, the confidence in the truthfulness just becomes more manifest. It doesn't diminish. And um, I love collecting sayings and phrases. And one that really just hits the nail on the head for me is seek the ancient paths. Like if something can stand the test of time, like a book that is no ordinary book, 6,000 years old, that is pretty special. So the four aspects of the truth that have been particularly meaningful to me that are very diverse, the first one is the proven historical veracity. And uh, maybe I was really really grateful at the time it wasn't so much fun but my dad would take me to this museum that was stuffed full of archaeology as a kid so it's a british museum in london and there is just article after artifact after relic in that place that you know you just you can't not believe like when you see them um, from the tiniest little clay fragments that have this cuneiform writing on to much bigger things. It's just the truthfulness is stamped all over history that you can't miss it if you just go looking for it. The second is the remarkable accuracy of prophecy. So even Christ himself pointed to prophecy and so you just think about you or me in our everyday life. Um, <laughs> for me, I mean, if I get one thing right about what's going to happen tomorrow, that is pretty remarkable. Um, but with Scripture, 
for the coming of Jesus as one huge example, there's 313 distinct prophecies, some of them repeated many times in different places, that all came true in one man. And the chances of that just happening are astronomical. There is no other book that I know of on the planet, no other person that has made such remarkable prophecies. And the third one is one that has grown on me, and that's some of the remarkable insights that Scripture gives into how the world works. They're the type of things that it was in the Bible long before we ever knew it. Just like, I'll give you one simple one. Please. The word um, in Hebrew for earth is aretz. And aretz comes from the root rats, which means to run. So in the very name of our planet, we know that we are not stationary. We are in orbit. We are moving through space. So there, in a 6,000-year-old text, it's clear, because it's one of the first words in the Bible, that, um, you know, the earth is in motion. Humans didn't appreciate it at that time, but nonetheless, there it is in Scripture. There it was, yeah. And the fourth one is probably the most personal of all of these. There are, there's truths in truth in scripture related to my own behavior. And to be honest, sometimes that's a little uncomfortable. Like, um, <laughs> I have come to the discovery, which I'm not proud of, that I'm actually naturally selfish. And um, my wife will tell you, probably confirm that. There's some references uh, there. Yes. Uh, and so there are many things in scripture that we might not like the sound of, like, to think of others as better than ourselves. But if we just do them, just get on and do it, we realize there's another side that we hadn't experienced before, and the truth is experiential in the doing. So four things, and I want to get into this. I, I want to get into those four things, but the four things one is the reliability of the history. Two is the uh, specificity of prophecy. Three being uh, just some fundamental things about the earth that, or, or the universe life. really, and life that people of that scientific um, thought process 6,000 years ago would not have known. And then the fourth thing being the fact that hey, it works. It just experientially works. Yeah. So let's get into this. Um, talk me through reliability of history. What is about the reliability of Scripture from a historical framework that makes uh, Scripture true to you? So there are just so many examples one could cite. So I will just choose one. And the reason I choose this one is as a boy when I first heard about it, it was kind of interesting to me. So the, there is a little clay tablet, in fact, a fragment of a tablet, which is about five inches across. And this clay tablet is really a bit unusual to our eye because the writing on it 
is written in cuneiform. Now, cuneiform is while the clay was still wet, there was a little triangular-shaped stylus that made impressions. And it's called the Nabonidus Chronicle. And what's interesting about the Nabonidus Chronicle is before it was discovered, it was the only place that verified a key aspect of the book of Daniel. So in the book of Daniel, we have this remarkable scene, which is actually the very last day of an empire. And the king, in what was really some kind of drunken orgy, he brought out the holy vessels that was taken, like stolen from the temple in Jerusalem and had been in storage in Babylon as his trophy of war when Israel had like rebelled against God. And he now decided that he would drink the wine from them. So on the wall, there's this, this disembodied hand, we probably all read the story, um, which says, mene, mene, tekelupasin, which each word has two meanings. It means you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And so this so freaked the king out to see this disembodied hand writing on his wall that it says his knees were like shaking. They were, he was undone in that old wonderful King James English. <laughs> yes. Uh -huh. Woe <laughs> is me, I am yes. undone. Yes. Yeah. So he said, whoever could read this would be made the third in the kingdom. Why not the second? Yeah. So that's where many of these critics of the time had a field day. So it's like the Bible clearly, their words, not mine, doesn't know what it's talking about. He was the king. He could give place number two. But it turns out that we learn from this little clay tablet, the Nabonidus Chronicle, that the king of the time, who was the father of this guy speaking, Belshazzar, yeah. Yeah, he didn't like the climate of Babylon. So he had decided he lived in a different place and he left his son in charge as the regent. And so, um, he turned out not to be a very good regent because this was the last day of the empire. While pretty much they were speaking, um, there was armies around. They diverted the river that went through Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, and they came in through the dried up river, and that was the end um, for them. So this little clay tablet basically lays all that out, that who was the king and um, that he was the regent and so on. So after all, what scripture had said all along was true. He couldn't give number two because he was number yeah, two. Yeah, he was number two. So that that is pretty remarkable. And so pretty much in detail, the text of that mirrors what we learn in scripture. Well, even still, we could go even further into Daniel and talk about the visions of the, the statue, about the kings of the north and the south, about the empires that are being laid out from the Medes and the Persians to Greece to Alexander being described in pretty descriptive detail to all of a sudden these feet of clay and iron of the Romans coming and 
really describing the exact movements of the Roman generals, Pompey and Titus. I mean, pretty remarkable when you... Amazing. And the wonderful thing about those Daniel passages, like I think it's Daniel 11 is a lovely thing. So if anybody's not really studied this, there's a, there's a really cool book called uh, Encyclopedia of Bible Prophecy, and it goes through every verse and what the fulfillment was. So what's really interesting in Daniel is it gives both the big sweep, like the major empires and their order, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, but then it gives details like the how the Greeks it, it split into different parts, and then that the generals would have the different parts. Seleucids, the Ptolemies, uh, all of it. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And then there's even other bits that are like more of a soap opera. It, it really is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like the, the daughter of the king of the south will go with the king of the north, and all the the details of what happened, and they all came true. And it happened from what we would call secular sources, yes. would verify these things actually happened. So it's truly, truly uh, remarkable. And I think another reason why the prophecy, so the prophecy and history essentially merge with that. Kind of blurred it, but let's go into the prophecy aspect now. So we've got reliability of the historical record. Now let's kind of get into prophecy a little bit. Yeah, so I think one of there's two key aspects that help me with this prophecy because both of them in their own right are remarkable. One aspect is the simple manifest truth that something was prophesied before it happened. And this is not now one thing, it's how many things. So in the case of Jesus, there were 313 things about Jesus' life that were verifiable beyond Scripture. And they all came true. So the chance of that happening, in fact, I've worked it out, um, is basically one with 94 zeros after it. So you know, like we flip a coin, it's a chance of one in two. So if you do for one coin flip, that would be a probability of a half. So if all 313 were to come true, that probability is a half times a half times a half, 313 times for them all to come through. Right. So that's one with about 94 zeros after it. So just the odds of that happening is the same as saying it's impossible to happen by chance. So just to recap here and just to say, just to, if I'm hearing this correctly, it's the chances of all these 300 plus prophecies that are going to actually occur, some of them being foretold 1,400 years before Jesus came, all the way up to about 450 yes, years. exactly. In the span of 1,000 years, what you're saying is that the likelihood of that happening is if I flipped a coin 313 times and it was heads every, every single time. time. Like, yeah, it's not going to happen. It's That's impossible. beyond our normal experience. Mm -hmm. Let's just leave it like that. <laughs> so the second aspect of that is which you touched on is I may have a chance of saying what's going to happen tomorrow for one thing, because I might have an insight today that it looks pretty certain it's going that way. But the nearest 
in time to Jesus of those 313 was about 400 years. The furthest in time is actually around 4,000 years. So um, like right back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, um, like really what the role of Jesus was. Genesis 3, 27, I think, the... Uh... He will, uh, you will strike his heel, you will crush his head, the proto-Evangelion. Yes. yes. So, so that's just, that's something else. But we, we could go for quite a while on that, yes. And so uh, the reason that's meaningful to me is not just, is it remarkable for the breadth and the time, but Jesus himself pointed to it. Um, so on that point... The reason that book, the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, helped me is because there was this man's work. He went through pretty much every scripture in the Bible and like when did it happen and give historical sources. What I hadn't realized was just how much of scripture is prophecy. Now, the relevant thing here, bringing it back, is I always find it helpful. Like, what does this mean for me? You know, this can all be very nice. But what does it mean for me? What it means for me is this book has a track record. Like if you think of the people we know in our life, if there's one or more people, it'd be wonderful, it's more than one, but if there's a person that's consistently reliable, like they say something, they do it, or they express an opinion, and yeah, it normally turns out pretty right. Their estimation goes up in our sight. So this puts the estimation up in our sight. And it's not just the prophecies that have happened. There's a lot of happened. There's many more that haven't yet happened. The biggest of these probably is Jesus is coming back. So if with a chance of one with 94 zeros after it, against all the odds, he came the first time and did against all the odds what it said he would do from 4,000 to 400 years, he's coming back. Amen. And so the question is, not is he coming back, but am I ready? And so that's when it, for me as a person, it like switches gear because this isn't academic. It's, am I ready? It's a, it's an evasion of the supernatural into our thought processes that says the reality is that this happened once. And now it's saying that it's going to happen again. And, and it's not hype. So it's not about having a good feeling or singing a song and having a high. I like singing songs. But this is about cold reality that you can go in a museum and you can see the artifacts that prove it. And you can find the manuscripts of the Bible that there's no other book on the planet that has as many ancient copies as the Bible. Like if we take Plato, so nobody really would um, question Plato existed. But then if you ask the question, do we have the original of the works of Plato? 
And the answer is we don't have any of the originals. So then, do we have any manuscripts of Plato that are more than a thousand years old? So Plato lived um, fourteen hundred years ago or so. Ballpark. Four, uh, so four 3400. two eight to three four eight yeah, BC. BC. Mm-hmm. So the there's only a handful of manuscripts of Plato that are more than um, about 800 years old. But if you contrast that to the Bible, so nobody questions it. No like one questions Plato. Plato, yeah. No, no one questions that when we read in high school The Republic, no one questions that that yes. is reliable. But then if you ask how many manuscripts, there's a handful, but that's fine. Sure. For, for Scripture, there's more than a thousand manuscripts more than a thousand years old. And if you compare them to what we have today, the differences are inconsequential. They do not affect the main meaning of the passage. And in fact, what was really interesting to me is the care with which they were duplicated. So I didn't realize this, but if you just take the part that's written in Hebrew, for example. So those scribes that would write a copy of a Hebrew manuscript, they would be fastidious. They would make sure no two letters touched, that they would count how many letters, how many words. And if in their copying, they accidentally touched two letters, so when they were writing, two letters touched, they would replace the whole scroll. They wouldn't, that would be an invalid copy. So it's like this is <laughs> tremendous care has been taken. The care in which the Hebrew scrolls were copied, but even with the Greek scrolls of the New Testament and the papyrus and the parchments and all that, door, we have so many and internal and external textual criticism has become so good. And it's become so good because there's so much evidence that we can compare it with they can tell which scribal um, errors there were, which, you know, what is essentially the control copy. And, and they would say that there's really no, no issue when it comes to the reliability. And as you said, it's just negligible. Historical re- uh, reliability, prophecy. I really want to get into this third one because this gets into the atmospheric chemistry and the physics of it all. This fascinating.